0: I want to invite you to take your Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, book of 1 Peter chapter 4. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you should find it on page 1296, 1 Peter chapter 4. One of the uh, oldest and most common pieces of advice when it comes to public speaking uh, goes something like this. Tell them what you're going to say, say it, then tell them what you said. Right? Some of y'all have heard that before, I'm sure. Some variation of that. The point is always the same, that there is wisdom in repetition. Tell them what you're going to say, say it, and then tell them what you said. The Bible certainly makes use of that wisdom uh, Next time you're reading in the the Prophets or uh, the Psalms, for example, uh, make note of how often you see that thoughtful, intentional repetition. And this morning, uh, this passage that we're going to read in 1 Peter, if you were to compare what Peter says in these verses with everything he's already said in this letter, you would find that there is very little, he says here, that is new. So if you approach the Bible only as a mental exercise, then when you encounter repetition, you may think to yourself, I've already heard this before, as if the Bible were were simply a trivia book and I've already gained that tidbit, that fact. But I want to invite us to take a different approach when we read God's Word, that when you encounter repetition, rather than thinking, I know this already, I've heard this, think to yourself instead, okay, God made me. He knows how much I need to hear the same truth again and again. So I'm going to listen. Um, and even if I don't learn anything groundbreaking, I will be reminded of something that is foundational. And, and I will be aided by God's Spirit, not only to, to know and to learn, but to believe and to obey His Word. And so I want us to do that together as we read in 1 Peter 4 this morning. We're going to begin in verse, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share. share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. while doing good. Let's pause there and we'll pray together. Lord, we pray that you would bless the hearing of your word. Spirit of God, we pray that you would indeed rest upon us today as we hear, give us ears to hear, and give us hearts to believe and wills to obey what you have to say in your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I said a moment ago, what what Peter says in this passage is not necessarily new, um, but I want us to look at it from a slightly different angle. That's one benefit of God's Word is you can, you can hear sometimes the same thing and you suddenly it's like the Spirit of God just kind of unlocks a new way of, of looking at it, a new way of hearing it. And so one of the things we saw uh, last week is we heard what God expects us to do in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand. In chapter 4, verse 7, Peter says, the end of all things is at hand, which is his way of saying everything that's necessary for Christ to return has already happened. It's all been fulfilled. All of his ministry, all of righteousness has been fulfilled. And now he could come back at any moment. And we might expect God to tell us in light of that to do drastic things, to do radical things. Instead, what he tells us to do are things that are relatively ordinary, like being self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers keep loving one another earnestly, show hospitality to one another, and serve one another. So that's what God expects us to do in light of the end of all things. And what I I want us to see together this morning is what can we expect God to do in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand. We need to know what God expects of us, but we also need to know what we can expect of God. And so I want to point us this morning toward two things that we can expect God to do on our behalf during this time between the first coming of Jesus and His return. The first thing that we can expect God to do is to refine our our holiness through unearned suffering. We can expect God to refine our holiness through unearned suffering. Peter says in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. And that phrase, fiery trial, stands out, doesn't it? Um, you might hear that and think, okay, well, what does Peter mean by fiery trial? Is he trying to indicate uh, uh, trials that are particularly severe? In fact, the, the guy who was, uh, who was the, the Roman emperor during the time when Peter wrote this letter was a guy who was known for, for burning Christians. And so maybe that's what Peter means. Maybe he's sort of indicating that. But when you, when you look at that, that may be the case, but it's not necessarily the case because when you, when you look at the text, the most specific example that Peter uses is in verse 14 where he says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ. So apparently something as simple as being insulted can qualify as a fiery trial. And even in verse 12, Peter says that the purpose of the fiery trial is to test you. And that word test could mean you know, revealing or, or refining, and I, I, I take him to mean both. So the word fiery, when he says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial, is not necessarily an indication of how, how severe or how painful the trial is, but it's about the purpose that God has in the trial. So it's not about the nature of the trial, what it is, how severe it is, how painful it is. The question is, what does God purpose to do through it? And what God purposes to do through it is to refine the holiness of His children through unearned suffering. And the word unearned is important. Uh, Peter has made that point a couple of times already in this letter that sometimes we endure hardship because of our own sin, because of our own foolishness. We make mistakes, we sin, and then we suffer for it. That's not what he's talking about here. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ. Not if you're insulted for being a jerk. Not if you're insulted for making a mistake or for sin. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And in verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. I, I just We don't have time to dive into that, but I just love that combination of sins. Murder, stealing, evildoing. And then meddling, right in the middle of all that. Just getting in other people's business, being a busybody. Don't suffer for those reasons. Plenty of people suffer because of that stuff, because of sin or foolishness. Peter's talking about something else entirely. He's talking about suffering that is unearned. Suffering that we did not do anything to cause it to happen to us. Now, if we have a self-centered perspective, then when that happens, of course we're going to be surprised. Of course, we're going to be downcast or even enraged that I would have to endure an unearned trial. We're probably going to to magnify even the smallest hardship into full-blown persecution and say, well, they did this, and so I'm being persecuted. And we'll say, I don't deserve this. But that's precisely the point. That's, That's the point, that you don't deserve this. It is unearned. God refines our holiness through unearned suffering. So if we have a God-centered perspective, then when that happens, I can stop and I can ask myself, what might God's purpose be in this? We can't always pinpoint something specific, but one thing we can always say is that if you're a child of God, One of God's purposes in unearned unearned suffering is to refine your holiness, to make you more like Christ. And then, then when we know that, we can do what Paul calls us to do in verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. It's not that we rejoice because of the suffering, as if we just find the trials themselves enjoyable. We rejoice insofar as we share Christ's sufferings, which means a practical takeaway that we cannot just react to trials. We can't just kind of do what comes natural. We have to engage our minds. We have to stop and remind ourselves, this is an opportunity for me to identify with Jesus. And because of that, I can choose to boast in my weakness because that makes His strength look all the more strong. I can choose to, to glory in His strength and to boast in my weakness. That's what it means to rejoice insofar as we share Christ's sufferings. In fact, one of the most sobering things Peter says in this passage is that the way we respond to unearned suffering reveals something about us. Notice what he says in verse 17. He says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So, judgment is something we typically associate with the very end. That's something that's going to be at the end. And rightly so. God has appointed a day when He will judge the living and the dead. Even in verse 17, Peter mentions what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. So there is still time for people to repent and to escape that judgment. Judgment is coming, but on the other hand, Peter says judgment has already begun. It is time, he says, present. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, which is to say the church so the idea is God allows His children to experience fiery trials in the present in order to refine their holiness and to reveal those who are truly His. The sad truth is there are, there are many people who profess to follow Jesus until the road gets too difficult. They're like the, the rocky soil, right? Where the seed is cast little sprout comes up, but then the sun beats down on it and it, it withers. They find out, man, this is too hard. Jesus expects too much from me. And so they fall away, revealing that they never belonged to Him in the first place. But when a genuine follower of Christ endures the fiery trials, when they are beat down with the sun and yet they still cling to the good soil of Christ... Then the genuineness of their faith is revealed, and not only revealed but also refined. As I was, um, as I was meditating on this passage uh, this week, I kept thinking about the words of of the hymn, "How firm a foundation," because in that hymn, the the author of that hymn relies on imagery from this passage. In one verse, I want to read you this verse. Um, this is a hymn where a lot of times. In, in hymns, we're singing to God, you know, great is thy faithfulness, that kind of thing. But in this hymn, God, even though we're singing, He's the one speaking. And, and in one of the verses it says, When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie. So taking up the language of 1 Peter four twelve, When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie. My grace, God speaking, my grace, all sufficient will be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you, I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. If you're a child of God, you need to know that God does not design fiery trials to harm you. He is not angry with you. All of His wrath toward your sin has been satisfied at the cross. So He doesn't have any wrath stored up for you anymore. But there is still work that He wants to do in you to make you more like Jesus. And the way He does that often is through fiery trials to consume your dross and to refine your gold. That's the first thing that God pledges to do for us, to refine our holiness through unearned suffering. And the second thing God does for us is He vindicates us with His presence. God vindicates us with His presence. We looked at the the first half of verse 14 where Peter says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, but I want you to notice the the second half of that verse as well. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And that's one of those things that I I just want us to kind of stop and think about for a minute. Don't rush past that. When God is doing the difficult, painful work in us of refining our holiness through unearned suffering, it's not like God just sort of leaves us on our own. It's not like He just sort of shoves us off and says, I'll see you on the other side. God Himself is personally present with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. He clothes us in the armor of the spirit which is strong enough to last the entire battle. So others may insult you for the name of Christ, but you are blessed. What what that means is that it does not matter their evaluation of you. What matters is God's evaluation of you. They may insult you for the name of Christ, but if that happens you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. God vindicates you by causing his spirit to rest upon you. Again, the, the, the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, one of the verses says, When through the deep waters I call oh, to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress. God doesn't shove us off down the, the rivers of sorrow all on our own. He says, I will be with you, your troubles to bless. Every trouble is blessed. Every distress blessed is sanctified by His presence with us in the deep waters, in the fiery trial. So God vindicates us with His presence. I want us to kind of pause here and just remember who is writing this letter. Because the the person writing this letter is telling us, listen, there's going to be times when you're tempted to, to be ashamed of Jesus when you may be tempted to deny ever knowing Him. And the person writing this letter has personal experience of just how painful that is. This is the same Peter who denied knowing Jesus. And not just denied knowing Him when when somebody powerful who could harm Him said, aren't you you from Galilee too? But when a little girl came to Him and said, aren't you one of His followers? No, I've never, never known Him, don't know Him. Three times... To his great shame, Peter would not associate with Jesus because it was costly. And yet, this is also the same Peter who repented and whom Jesus forgave and restored. This is the same Peter for whom Jesus said, I have prayed for you, Peter. This is the same Peter who in the book of Acts was filled with the Holy Spirit and continued speaking boldly even when he was threatened to stop. So Peter knows what it's like to shrink in shame, and to identify with Christ boldly in the power of the Spirit. He knows both sides of that. Now with that in mind, I want you to listen again to what he says in verse 16. He says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Do not be ashamed to bear the name of Jesus, but instead glorify God in that name. Now, when we use the word Christian, that's one of those words that's easy to kind of just sort of run over. If anyone suffers as a Christian, blah, blah, blah. But that's because we, we associate the word Christian with somebody who follows Jesus. They're a believer. We associate, I think, for the most part, good things with that word. But if you look at the New Testament carefully, what you find is Christian, that title was a word that unbelievers gave to believers, that they used to describe those who follow Christ. And it's kind of of a derogatory word. It has an undertone of, of, of a derogatory nature. So you could almost think of that word, Christian, as a slur that unbelievers gave to diminish those who follow Jesus, which is why Peter says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, Let him not be ashamed. That was a word that was meant to shame them. Don't be ashamed. Redeem the name. Glorify God in that name. So for first century readers, if they were enduring insults or persecution because they identified as followers of Jesus, you can imagine the temptation to say, well, I'm just not going to call myself a Christian. I'm not going to call myself a follower of the way. I'm not going to identify with Christ. I'll just keep that in my heart, and I'll go about my business and, and sort of keep to myself. So Peter writes out of personal experience when he says, do not be ashamed to be called a Christian. Glorify God in that name. But my task, in part, is to apply this to, to our context. And in our context, the truth of the matter is, most of the time it is not costly to associate with Jesus. Most of the time it's not costly to be called a Christian. If anything, the opposite a lot of times is true. Claiming to be a Christian can sometimes be a way that that people advance themselves economically, socially, politically. There have been many, many people who have gone out and called themselves a Christian not because they're trying to identify with Christ, but because they're trying to get more business, more votes, more respect in the community, whatever the case may be. So how do we apply this to our context then? Well. Even though we live in a society where it can often be to our advantage to call ourselves a Christian, it can be costly in our society to actually try to live like Jesus. You can call yourself a Christian all day long, but start getting specific about trying to honor the full character of Jesus and not just what people think about Jesus, trying to obey all of his commands, and you're going to get up, you're going to upset some people. Sometimes even other people who call themselves Christians are going to say, Why are you being so so intense about this? You know, simmer down a little bit. So the the takeaway for us is not that we need more people who are, you know, posting about Jesus on, on their Facebook wall or wearing a cross around their neck or or putting a Jesus fish on their car or something like that. Not that there's anything wrong with any of those things. That's fine. But the primary application is don't just do that stuff, but actually live out a consistently Christ-like way of life. That is how we can glorify God in the name of Christ. Not just by calling ourselves a Christian, but by giving Jesus a good name. By, by living and treating others like Him and knowing that when we do that, the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. Now, as we turn our attention this morning to the Lord's Supper... Um, it's helpful to remind ourselves of what this is not. The Lord's Supper is not a way that we twist God's arm into giving us what we want. As if we were saying to God, God, if you will make my life easy and respectable, then I'll identify with Jesus. Hear me. God does not need you. He doesn't need you on His team. He doesn't need me on His team. God does not need me to vindicate Him with my faith. As if God was just sitting around waiting, saying, Wow, now Matt believes in me. Now I've got some credibility. Now I've got some, some street cred because now Matt believes in me. Whew, I was starting to worry about that for a little while. God does not need us. He's not desperate for us to glorify His name because He needs it. As if we're doing Him a favor. God, make my life easy and respectable, and I'll identify with Jesus. This is what we need, not what He needs. So the Lord's Supper is a picture of our union with Him by grace through faith. When we take the bread and cup, we remember and we proclaim that God has done all that is necessary to reconcile us to Himself. We proclaim that our joy and our trust are in Him, And we proclaim our union and fellowship with others in the household of God. And one of the things that the Lord's Supper is meant to do in light of that is it's meant to remind all of us of what is most central. What is the thing above all other things that unites us? There are too many people in the world today who seem eager to divide and division is often a way of maintaining power and influence. It's a way of asserting superiority over others, where if, if I make division, then I can, I can feel as if I'm superior to people from whom I'm divided. But the Lord's Supper is a way of saying our communion with God and with one another is not on the basis of, of anything else but Jesus. It's a way of expressing unity around what is most central, not how we look Not where we're from, not who we vote for, not our personal preferences, but Jesus. He's the center. He's the point at which we find communion with God and with one another. Now, if you've never trusted in Jesus or if you're not sure where you stand with Him, I want to just encourage you to observe this morning. Uh, Parents can help kids know whether they need to partake or not. uh, and, And you can help them to understand why we do this. Um, I want us to take a moment and uh, pray together, and then I'll give us some instructions for how we'll do this. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you that all that is necessary uh, for us to be right with you, you have done. All we have needed, your hand has provided. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we would be reminded as we partake of bread and cup today, that uh, we come before you with empty hands. We come to receive what you have to provide. And so, Lord, would you humble us? Would you empower us by your Spirit to trust in you? And, Lord, would you give us joy in who you are and in what you have done? And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, so we're going to do things a little bit differently uh, than normal this morning. Uh, here's, how, here's how it's going to work. Before you grab a cup from the pew in front of you, I want you to grab a hymnal and turn with me to number 534. Hymn number 534. Um, once you get there, if you want to join me in receiving the bread. You can take your little container and peel back that first layer of cellophane. And you can hold the bread in your hand. Cindy's going to play. We're going to sing the first verse of this song, Take My Life and Let It Be. And then we'll receive the bread together. Let me read for us from, uh, from John 6. In John 6, Jesus had multiplied bread uh, miraculously, and some of the people there understood the significance of that image of, of someone miraculously giving them bread. And so they followed Jesus and said to Him, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, body of our savior jesus christ, christ broken for you eat and remember just let it kind of dissolve the bread of life i can assure you is much more satisfying than that bread would would lead you to believe um, so hopefully you kept your hands open to number 534. We'll sing the second verse in just a second. Um, you can go ahead and peel back the, the next layer on your cup there, and this is where you want to be really careful. I want to read from 1 John chapter 1. John writes... Uh, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Now let's sing the second verse of this song together. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ shed for you. Drink and remember. All right. Every time we hear God's word, there's an opportunity for us to to draw nearer to Him or to harden our hearts. I want to invite you this morning to draw near. John goes on to say there in 1 John, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The promise of Jesus is, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your promise uh, and the certainty of it, that those who come to You in genuine faith, You will never cast out. Lord, what a precious truth that is. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that today you would help us not to harden our hearts toward you, uh, but that we would uh, draw near to you. Lord, I pray as we have heard and we have seen a display of your uh, wonderful truth, the good news of what you've done in Christ, Lord, that you would move in our hearts, uh, ensure us of the promises that you have made to us and uh, allow us to obey and to follow you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.